0: This reading is Matthew 26, verses 20 to 30. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: How many of you grew up with show and tell in elementary school? Awesome. Great. This illustration is going to work. Um, I was wondering if they still do that today but I vividly recall a time when I was given the opportunity to lead my elementary school class in show-and-tell. And so I invited my father to come in to the classroom. He's an orthopedic surgeon. And I invited him in to tell the class about what it was like to be a doctor. That was the show, that was the tell part. The show part involved him bringing in a human skull. And it was a skull that had been passed down through the family, and it had belonged to my grandfather. It wasn't his head, but it was, just <laughs> to clarify, <laughs> but he, he, was the, um, he was the head of the psychiatric hospital, the state psychiatric hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He was also uh, named the first commissioner of mental hygiene in the state of, of Ohio in the 1930s. So with that bit of background, it's always caused me to wonder, where did he get that skull from? (laughs) So my dad brought in this skull uh, on this particular day, and he was telling them about what it was to be a doctor, what it was like to be a doctor. And so then he was holding the skull in his hands, and he asked my classmates, so what do you think is inside your head? Well, you you know know what you get with elementary school kids, just whatever comes to their mind, and they blurted out all kinds of answers. He then proceeded to un- clasp the, the hooks that were hinged that held the top of the skull um, in place. And he unhooked those hinges and then he took the skull, the top of the skull off and was holding it to then reveal what was inside the skull. It was bubble gum. <laughs> Thankfully wrapped and it was, uh, it was double bubble. I've never forgotten that. And what made it so cool was that he walked around through the aisles, and and he let every kid reach into that skull and pull out a piece of bubble gum, and and they were just absolutely delighted. That was the coolest thing they've ever done in their life. And and I remember remember that, I don't have a lot of vivid memories of growing up as a child, but that one I recall because it was so incredible what he had done, and I was so proud of my dad. And what's... What's so cool about show and tell is that you don't have to leave that behind in elementary school. You're invited to participate in an act of show and tell today. We're going to be doing something that's going to be very show and tell today as well. And there's no skulls, there's no bubble gum, but the show part is participating in communion this morning. And if you've been in a Christian church, you've either seen it done or you've participated in it by receiving uh, bread, wine, juice. Uh, And today, You'll have the opportunity to not only receive it, but to also offer it to someone else. So it will be a very participatory event. I'm letting you know it's coming, and everyone's invited to participate this morning. But in order to prepare us for the show part, I want to spend some moments reflecting on what we're doing in this practice. What is the action telling? And so this is part of the uh, ongoing series we've been in on living in God's kingdom. What does it look like to live in God's kingdom? I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat. It's blue. <clears throat> Page 958 in those blue Bibles. If you have an app, go ahead and open that up as well. In 1 Corinthians 11, and we just want to read some verses that are very familiar that often get read uh, when people are leading communion. <clears throat> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, look down at Verse <clears throat> 23. Christians who've been part of a church for a long time, one thing you can say about this text is that Paul expected the first Christians to continue this practice. That business about do this in remembrance of me, Paul expected this action to be perpetuated, to be continued. Communion is an action that's intended to stir up a foundational memory of faith, specifically of of Jesus dying in our place so that we can experience The life of God so that we can share in the the life of God and we can experience God's grace and his forgiveness and his love. And so this tangible practice is intended to stir that up. And this is why it's such good news. This is why we talk about the gospel here at Grace. This is what makes this such good news because God isn't telling us to clean up our act. God isn't saying, you need to to get rid of your bad habits and then I'll pay attention to you and then I'll I'll love you and then I'll do some good things for you. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people who call themselves Christians function that way. Alex talked last week about how it's so easy to function as atheists in our world, practicing atheists, and I got feedback from many of you that 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 comment resonated with you. But I think it's also possible to, to, to function this way as well, kind of as moralists, meaning that there's something I need to do to earn God's smile, to earn God's favor. Because most of us are aware of our deficits, our, our doubts, our anxieties, our fears, our bad habits, the things that we hide that no one knows about. And so it's easy to have that stuff be a barrier that keeps us from really believing that God really loves us and, that he's, and this good news really is good news for us. So this act of communion is intended to stir up this foundational memory of faith related to Jesus but it's also intended to go back even further because three of the four Gospels Matthew, Mark and Luke attached the Last Supper to the Passover. Now why is that significant? Well because the Passover meal was, was one in which the people of Israel recalled their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. In other words, to to eat the Passover meal was to look back at an act of divine deliverance, namely that God had stepped in on Israel's behalf. I, I reflected on that this week. I thought, what would it be like to have your identity be grounded in deliverance out of slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and then have this God being step in and deliver you with a mighty hand. What would that be like to say, I am of those people. This is my identity to be part of these people. And so the Passover called that into into remembrance that God had acted on behalf of Israel. But then you fast forward from the Exodus almost 1,500 years, and in Jesus, God acted once again to deliver people from slavery, but this time... It's slavery from sin, from the power of sin and death. And this is why John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. So to take part in this communion is to look back in history. Communion tells us that we're connected to a story that began before any of us were on the scene. We're connected to what Kevin Van Hooser calls a theodrama, Meaning that it's this this story that has God as a central figure in it. That's why he calls it a a theodrama. And it's bigger than our individual lives. It's been going on for thousands of years. But if that's all this is about, remembering the past, why do we need bread, wine, or juice? Ever thought about that? I mean, can you remember without food? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, think about it. We, we remember a whole host of things during the day without having to stop and eat food and remember it. So why in the world do we need bread, wine, and or juice to remember? Well, C.S. Lewis says that we shouldn't be surprised that God uses material physical things to deepen our faith because, after all, we live in a physical, material, embodied world. Here's how he puts it. There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely, a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. And that's right, isn't it? You know, God created this world and he called it good and he cares about these these embodied creatures that he put onto onto this planet and he values this created material world so much that he himself took on flesh and blood to enter this world and to redeem it from within. God values the material, the physical world the goal of Christianity is not to get out of the material, physical world and to get into a disembodied state and a place called heaven. The trajectory of the biblical narrative begins in a garden and it ends up in a city. It's very much an embodied location, a very much a material place. So God chooses to use things in this world to lead us to him, these material things. Think about Psalm 19. That was one of the texts that we read in our Bible reading plan this week where the psalmist begins with, the heavens declare the glory of God. God uses his creation to draw us to him, to lead us to him, to remind us of his presence and his power and who he is. And the same thing is true with the the bread and the wine. They're intended to lead us to him. So communion is an action that's intended to stir up faith and trust in God by way of remembering. But it's not only an action of remembering the past. It's also about anticipating the future. See, like Israel, the people of God today live in between times. See, Israel lived between the time of their deliverance out of slavery and Egypt and the hope of entry into the land that God had promised them. Israel lived so much of their existence in this tension, in between times. And the people of God today, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we too live in between times. We live between the time of Jesus' victory, his death and his resurrection... And we live between that and the final victory of God. So we live like the people of Israel in between times. So to live in between times is to to live like a trapeze artist who lets go of the security of one bar and soars through the air defying gravity as he or she waits for the next catch. The trapeze artist is suspended by an act of faith. And to live as a follower of Jesus is to live like those midair moments of the trapeze artist. They're moments of uncertainty and risk, which are only resolved as we choose to take hold of what lies ahead of us, grasping it securely and firmly. So to live as a Christian is to live life framed by memory and hope. We remember and we anticipate. We remember God's faithfulness to his promise and his love demonstrated in his actions. Now here's why this is so important. You ready? Here's why this is so important. The continual, repeated act of remembering God's faithfulness Remembering God's love in the past conditions you to trust God for that in the future. Did you catch that? The continual, repeated act of remembering God's faithfulness and love in the past conditions you to trust God for that in the future. Having said that, if you're a Bible reader, it should call to mind the psalms where the psalmist is continually recalling God's faithfulness and God's love, God's trustworthiness. Why? Because as, as Israel would gather together and they would sing these songs, and this is the reason why we come in and we sing, it's the only place that you do it other than what? The baseball, you know, the national anthem and before any sporting event? That's the only time anybody sings or at a concert. But we come together and we sing, and part of that singing is to sing reminders to each other of God's faithfulness and God's trust, God's love, so that we can trust Him. As we're reminded of God's faithfulness and His love in the past, then we are conditioned afresh to trust Him for that in the future. But like the trapeze artist, we're swinging in between these times by an act of faith. It's an act of faith based upon seeing who God is and what He has done in the past and anticipating that He will be the same toward us in the future. That's what it means to live as a Christian. It is not pulling out a rule book and then finding 613 rules that you're called to obey. It's about living by faith in the character and the actions of God that have already been demonstrated in history. And that's why we read the Bible, to see that. And that's why we recall God's faithfulness in our own lives. That's why we tell stories up here on Sunday morning, to recall God's favor, God's blessing, God's faithfulness, and God's love. So remembering what God has done compels us to anticipate what God will do. And that's why Christianity is never about simply just remembering the past. It's also about anticipating the future. I think that's one of the the litmus tests of, of where you are as a Christian is how much do you anticipate the future? Where does God's future play into the way that you live your life? What, what is there about your life and my life that anticipates the possibility of what God might do this week or this month or in the future? Does that make sense? Because that's what, that's what we are to be about, is to be anticipating what God wants to do because he has been faithful in the past. And that's why communion is such a powerful act of show and tell because it involves both remembering And anticipating. It situates us between the past and the future. And we see this in the framing of of, that we heard Beth, uh, the text that Beth read this morning in Matthew 26, when Jesus is breaking the bread and he's eating, he's drinking the wine, and he's saying that I will no longer partake of this with you until I enter my Father's kingdom. He's anticipating the kingdom of God. He's anticipating a future time when He will return and heaven and earth will be united and Jesus will be Lord of all and God's good governance will break out over the world. So Jesus himself in this act of the the bread and the wine anticipated the future. This act situates us between the past and the future. So this act of communion orients us as the people of God. It orients us which I think says something about my condition and possibly your condition, and that is that we tend to get disoriented in life. Yes? And, and, you know, and the, even, even worse is that we think we're a good guide for ourselves. I know what's best for me. I know everything that I need to be about. I, 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 yeah, 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 I, 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 I. That's the culture we live in. Symbolized by this all the time. It's about me. And it's interesting that when to to be a, a child of God, to be called into life, the shared life that Christ gives to us, is to be called into a community. It's to be called into the people of God. It's to be called into a family where we share that life with each other. Why? Because we need the orientation each other provides for us. We need someone to look us in the eye and say, you know what, I can't, you're believing a lie about yourself. Here's what God has said about you. You need to hear this fresh word of grace and love in your life because you've let the lies of the enemy take you down. We need someone, we need someone to be the voice of Jesus in our lives, don't we? We need someone to be, to look us in the eyes and to have the eyes that Jesus might have for us, eyes of warmth and compassion and welcome, and speak words of life into us. I need that. I long for that. My guess is there are others here that long for the same. So as we travel through life, our journey is framed by memory and hope. And this orients us as the people of God. It orients us to remember what God has done for us and to anticipate what God will do. But it's anchored, now get this, it's anchored not in wishful thinking. That hope business is not, I hope it doesn't become 105 today outside. It is anchored not in wishful thinking, but in the victory that Jesus has won. This hope, this anticipation is anchored not in how hard I believe, but in the fact that Jesus has won the victory in his death and resurrection. I look back on the finished work of Jesus Christ, on the fact that he came out of a tomb, the tomb was empty, and Jesus is Lord of all. He has defeated the power of sin and death. so as we practice communion, the tone is celebration. As Paul says, he uses that language of being in Christ. Because we are in Christ, His victory is our victory. And too often, I mean, I, I, grew, up in, I grew up in church... And I remember, I have, that's another thing I have vivid memories of, and it was always this introspection and this, you know, confess, try to find like 40 sins that you can confess before you come up here, and, and the more remorseful you are, and the more grave and somber you are, probably the more deserving you are of that little tiny piece of bread and that little shot glass of grape juice, Welch's grape juice. I thought, I said, what, what there's something wrong here. Even as a kid, I had this sense that there's something wrong here. By the way, that, that whole issue of, of from 1 Corinthians 11 about examining yourself, in context, that's about the abuse that was going on in that church contextually. People were coming to the communion table hammered. They were drinking wine. You drink wine, you drink too much, you can get hammered. You don't get hammered drinking Welch's grape juice. I might go into a diabetic coma, but you don't, will not get hammered. So they were coming to the communion table. They were eating. They were bringing their own food. They weren't sharing it. There's all kinds of abuses going on in this church. Paul is correcting that. So you first of all have to see those words in their context and not just take them out and extrapolate them and universalize them. And unfortunately, a lot of pastors have done that, I think. But when you look at the communion in terms of its larger context of this anchoring us between the past and the future and the victory that Jesus has won, then the tone is one of celebration. We come before this table and we're reminded that it is finished. What Jesus has done has finished on our behalf. If you feel like, you, if you come before this table today and you feel like saying "Hallelujah" when someone looks at you in the eyes and says, "The body of Christ for you, the blood of Christ for you," and you feel like saying "Hallelujah," say "Hallelujah." <laughs> well, it won't matter; they're going to be playing music. No one's going to get upset at you. But if you feel like it's a, it's a, it's a time to, to express your celebration, then do it. We we tend to be a little bit more on the. Um, uh, President side here, reserve oh, yeah. side. <laughs> you're starting early, you're starting early. Because you see, this act is intended to flood us with, with hope. It's intended to flood us with hope and fill us with fresh anticipation of what it is that God wants to do for us in the future.